new beginning. Welcome to the Grief James podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. It's a beautiful day to podcast. And before we get started, I just want to give a shout out. I know Josh said I didn't shout out people <laughs> recently. So shout out to all you who are listening uh, in North America, Canada, all across the globe, our friends in Australia, Great Britain, uh, Ireland, uh, Africa, Asia, uh, New Zealand. Shout out New Zealand. Don't um, forget Antarctica. Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> oh man, if we <laughs> that'd be surprising. Very surprising. Maybe there's a maybe there's a researcher in uh, Antarctica right now. They're also in a great place to be right now. Uh, but anyways, thank you for listening. We appreciate every download, every time you're listening to this podcast, and we hope it brings you something to your life as well. Joshua, any anybody you want to shout out? I think you covered everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Uh, So let's get started. Let's introduce our first guest. Her name is Dr. Sharon Prentice, and she is a psychotherapist and spiritual counselor whose work focuses on helping patients process the grief of losing a loved one. Becoming Starlight is her memoir of healing from the devastating loss of her daughter and husband. She experienced a unique spiritual experience known as a shared death experience, which gave her a peek into foreverness and a sense of peace that was otherworldly. For more information, please visit SharonPrentice.com and follow the author on Facebook and Twitter. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. I can tell with you too. This is going to be fun. So. Uh. <laughs> I like that. It's good. And so I'm always curious about people's journeys to begin with. And looking at your bio, I wasn't sure which came first. So did you become a doctor first before the losses or was the losses shape your career choice? The losses shaped my career choices. Hmm. Um, Before these losses, I was just, you know, one of those kids running around, not knowing which direction to go in, just kind of free falling all over the place. And these we're, types of things really connect you with where you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to, which direction you're supposed to go in. Okay, so what were you doing before the losses? Playing. <laughs> <laughs> Playing. I was actually in college. Um, you know, I didn't want to be there. My dad, I actually went to college because my dad said, you're going to college. Um, so I went. He chose all of my classes for me. He chose things like geography and calculus and, you know, all of those things that I could barely even spell, let alone want to sit in the classroom. So I really didn't want to be there, but I actually met my husband um, when I was in college. So in a way, it all kind of worked exactly the way it was supposed to, because I would have never met him um, had I not been in college and spent all of my time, not in the classroom, but across the street at a little bar called the King's Head Inn. And that's where I met my husband. <laughs> College was a good thing at that point. That's amazing. That's really good. Hey, you. Uh, we sometimes go to one place and find something else. So uh, it's good that you found your husband. And was that the same husband that died later on? Yes, it was. It was. And with that, the King's Head Inn was a place where every student eventually ended up. You know, all the students, the professors, everybody that's where we would go, whether we wanted to be in class or after class or on the weekends. The place was just, you know, there, it was the college hangout. And Steve happened to come in there. He was in the military, so he should not have been there. It was during uh, wartime. And, you know, when college students were protesting everything known to mankind, 
And so the military and college students did not mix. And he came in there with two of his friends in their full dress uniform because they had been to some formal thing. And when they walked in, the whole place just kind of stopped and stared, you know, wondering what in the world are these guys doing here? And that came, became really a staring contest between he and I. And we were married three months later. <laughs> oh, wow. That's quick. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was one of those things where you just knew. You know, I don't know how to explain it. It's just you just knew. And it was it was really it was wild. I should say he knew before I did because he actually had to hunt me down because I gave him the wrong phone number. I didn't want my friends to know that I was going to go out with a military guy, you know. So I gave him I didn't give him my right name. I gave him a fake phone number. He kept going back to the end. I did. I did. He kept going back to the end to find me. And he finally found one of my friends that he recognized. And they gave him all the right info. And he went to my house and met my dad and shook my dad's hand and said, hello, sir. My name is Steve. And I'm going to marry your daughter. And my dad's response was, well, good luck with that, son. So that's the way it all started. <laughs> that's fascinating. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it was... Uh, Hey, you know, when you're young and you don't really have too many responsibilities at the time, even if you did, you wouldn't recognize them. You just kind of go with where your where your soul leads you to go, you know. Right. And so that's that's what happened. And so how did that all turn out? So what was that relationship like? Because you jumped in right away. And so I'm guessing after that three months when you got married, you really learned a lot about each other. Yeah, we did. He he actually was exactly what I expected him to be. Um, he was very much like my dad, who was also a military he was a career guy. And so nothing was really a big surprise. Uh, he was what I expected him to be, and I was what he expected me to be. And our life was very exciting, always on the move. Like I said, he was military, and we were transferred um, you know, right away, uh, he got orders to go to Great Lakes Naval Station out in Chicago um, within days. Matter of fact, we had to move our wedding up because the Navy said, whoops, guess what? You're you're being transferred. So we moved the wedding up a couple of months instead of it being six months before we got married. It was three um, because he had to leave. So we were married one day and we didn't even have honeymoon. The next day we were in the car going to Chicago from Virginia. And it was just this constant, everything was new. Everything was exciting. You know, when you're 20 years old, everything is new and everything is exciting. And, and we just fit together. We really fit together perfectly. It, it, it was the right move at the time. It really was. That's amazing. No, it's good to be able to look back and realize that it was the right decision. And so I'm guessing you didn't finish college. What, not that at time. that point. No, I did it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I learned more on the streets of Chicago in a very short period of time you know, than I did that first year in college. I can certainly tell you that. Uh, talk about life lessons. Um, very, very different real life than it is, you know, in the, the cloistered. I know that normally doesn't go with college at the time, but it really is a, a secure environment when you're that age because you know what's expected of you, what you're supposed to do, you know certain things you do, certain things you don't do. But when you're out in the real world and you are confronting everything that is going on everywhere, especially in a place like Chicago, uh, you grow up really fast. And it was quite a learning experience for the both of us. It really was. 
but it was the right decision and it came across i mean so quickly it was just one of those things where you knew it was right every single cell in your body knew it was right and i was kind of a rebel anyway so it was like hey this is what i'm going to do nobody was going to stop me and i didn't expect anything except what i had all my life you know just i had been a very privileged little girl i had the best parents known to mankind both of them were very supportive and very loving and everything was kind of handed to me on a silver platter and it was it was great i never had to face any type of you know grief or despair or or any of the things that a, a lot of kids face growing up i never had any of that so i just expected that to continue um, after we got married so i had absolutely no reserves no wherewithal no nothing to deal what was going to be coming my way and so what happened so what when did those losses come your way um within i want to say three months maybe four um i got pregnant which was great i mean it was one of those things we're going to have a baby yay you know there was never any oh my god this is going to ruin everything or whatever it was one of the most amazing moments ever um when the doctor called and said guess what but very very shortly thereafter i got sick and i mean sick I don't know why people called it morning sickness because this was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, constantly sick. And that got worse and worse and worse. And I started losing weight. I couldn't eat. I couldn't even keep water down. It was really, really bad in and out of the hospital constantly. Um, the doctors actually told me that I should probably terminate the pregnancy. And, you know, back then, they they didn't tell you that, but they said, you should probably terminate this because it's going to kill you. And I'm like, yeah, no way in hell was that going to happen. Um, so I kept going and I kept going and I'm getting sicker and sicker and sicker and, and the baby wasn't growing um, the way she was supposed to be growing. Um, I was doing everything known to mankind. The only thing I could finally keep down, believe it or not, was chocolate. That's why I call chocolate manna from the gods because it kept me alive. And I counted week by week by week by week, you know, to get to the point where I knew that the pregnancy was viable and that this child would be able to live. Uh, but went into labor very early. Well, I was six months pregnant, um, maybe six months and a week, something like that, and went into labor early. And when she was born, she, of course, was very, very small, and she died in my arms two hours after she was born. And there was no place in my entire body, no place in my soul, nothing that could take in the reality of what had happened. Because these things, you know, death has an order, okay? You know, you're supposed to lose your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents, you know, sisters, brothers, that kind of stuff. You are not supposed to start with the loss of your first child. Um, and that was the first time in my life that I felt absolutely powerless, zero control over anything in my life, and every single thing I had ever believed about the universe. And by the universe, I mean God, creation, good, evil, all of that, everything. I lost it all. And I felt like I was just swimming, you know, in this big void with absolutely nothing to hold on to and I did not know how to deal with it so I spiraled down into just 
this muck. You know what I mean? Just this, this muck. And I could not pull myself out of that. And at the same time, uh, my husband was getting sick. And nobody knew what was wrong with him. Absolutely no. It was one doctor after another. And, and after my daughter died, uh, we got orders to leave Chicago, which was fine because I wanted to get the heck out of Chicago. Uh, it meant nothing but pain and grief. And leaving my daughter there also meant leaving a lot of me there. You know what I mean? It, it was one of those things where if I left, I was going to leave most of me with her in that ground. It, it was it, it was one of these. It wasn't very logical, but it was a you know purely emotional thing. But he got orders. We moved to San Diego. He was going to go to SEER training. He was getting ready to go off to war. Um, and you know, SEER training is is that um, survival, uh, evasion, resistance, escape. It's what they put SEALs, you know, and, and things that type of training and the people who are going to be out in country um, where they the, um, where they could be captured and you know what what to do um, with all that kind of mess and he was getting very sick there nobody knew what was going on anyway to make a long story short he died um, another person that died in my arms and it was I can't even begin to tell you um, all of the things that went into his death it's a it's a long story um, but at the time of his death, there really wasn't anything left of me either, you know, losing my daughter, losing him. The only thing that kept me alive was I had a little boy, and I knew that I could not die because I had this little boy that I had to take care of. Um, and that's where the shared death experience comes in, uh, because at the moment of Steve's death, you know, a shared death experience, I don't know if you... If your listeners or even you know exactly what it is, it's pretty much exactly the same as a near-death experience, except the person having that experience is just kind of taken along. I call it a, a, a glimpse into, you know, what happens after physical death, okay? Um, I was kind of, I don't know whether this was because Steve, when he got to where he was, said to God or creation or whatever, you know, he found, said, you know, you better throw her a bone because if you don't, she's going to die. You know, it was one of those things. So I uh, went on this amazing, amazing journey, a spiritual journey that changed my entire life, everything about me, everything I believed about the universe, everything I believed about God, everything I believed about me, it all changed. And that is when I knew exactly what I had to do. And that's why I do what I do today. Long story, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's so much in there. And especially yeah. you go back to your first loss of your daughter. Yeah. Like you fought so hard for her. Like you're just I eating did. chocolate. You, you know, like when people said, you know, she should terminate, you're like, no. And that fight, like I can only imagine then after she was born to then have to suffer that loss. It's like that hopelessness would be so huge as you're saying because you fought so long and so and you went you you went through so much for her for then to for her to die How that did... was that was the most even today there are times when it is i am inconsolable mm -hmm. about that because it's it's 
every once in a while I will just forget everything I know and everything I've learned and everything I believe and I will still find myself back in that moment um, feeling her last breath and that is something that really there aren't even any words you know to to describe that and you're right I and you know right before she died after she was born you do all the things that everybody does you know you beg you bargain you plead with with this god you think you know and you know, you're you're willing to give up your own life, you know, to, to take me, don't take her. I mean, you go through all of that type of bargaining. And then when none of it works and you realize that you weren't being heard or you think you weren't being heard, um, I discovered that what it was I was begging and bargaining with didn't exist. Anyway, my version of God at that moment was what you learned, you know, what you learn when you're a kid. It was, you know, the Charlton Heston and Ten Commandments, you know, that look. Um, that guy sitting up above the clouds, you know him. Um, that's who I was bargaining with, and that's who I was pleading with, and that does not exist. But I did not know that at the time. And so you are—that's a good word. The hopelessness and the despair is beyond anything that can even be explained. So you're right. That was—that uh, changed me from a, you know, free-flowing, hey, whatever person into somebody that was pretty negative and lived in a lot of pain and anguish and a lot of despair for a long time. And how did you and how did first, how did Steve deal with it all? And then how did your relationship suffer from that? It did suffer. Um, nobody could console me. I was one angry person and he was, he was feeling all the same things that I was feeling. But, you know, when you get into these type of grief situations, you don't really say the things you want to say and you don't really, you know, express yourself the way you need to express yourself because you're trying to console someone else. You know, you're trying to protect someone else. So instead of him telling me how he really felt, it was always, you know, those things that people say when they don't know what else to say. You know, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. You know, these types of things. That really wasn't what he wanted to say. He wanted to say the same things that I was feeling, but he thought he was going to be protecting me. And so I just clammed up. I just shut up because um, I thought, well, he didn't want to hear what I have to say either. Plus, I wanted to protect him. I didn't want to add more grief onto him. So we became very alienated from each other and very quiet with each other. And we didn't talk about the things we really wanted to talk about. I can remember laying in bed at night, facing opposite directions, you know, from each other and wanting so badly just to reach out and and hold each other. And yet the resentment um, that I felt toward him for not telling me how he really felt um, and the, still the anger that I had at no one, no one being able to explain to me why this happened, that that hurt us um, for, for quite a while. It really did. It hurt us until I realized that my alienating myself from him, instead of helping him, it was adding more to his pain and to his feelings of, you know, grief and despair, because then I added rejection, you know, I was making him feel that I was rejecting him and that I was blaming him for our daughter's death, which was exactly the thing I did not want to do, but I found myself doing it. I mean, it was an unconscious level, but I did it. Um, so it, it was, it took a while 
you know, to get that back. And that in itself was difficult because he was getting sick, you know. So I was dealing with all of this, you know, grief from from my daughter and not understanding anything about life and then seeing him get sick and not understanding that. So it was a whirlwind, just a whirlwind of, of emotions that just kicked my butt every day. And it was hard. It was really, really difficult to get through that. I needed a lot of solitude. I did. I needed a lot of solitude. I needed a lot of quiet time. And I did not in any way whatsoever want to be around a child anywhere. Anywhere. I didn't want to be around friends. I didn't want to hear a kid laugh. I didn't want to hear nothing. Nothing. So there was a lot of solitude in there. And it was very difficult. I eventually, of course, let him back in. Um, And that was uh, a moment between us that I will never, ever forget. Um, And I know he didn't either because it was just this opening, this, this spirit, this spiritual opening between two people who really honestly loved each other and had shared something that was so incredibly deep and dark. You know, within that deep and dark sharing um, that you live in, if you're able to share those types of things with each other, you can find something in there. I call it the underside of the soul, okay? If you can reach into that underside of the soul and pull out those shadows and, and be able to share those shadows with someone without feeling judged, you know, and feeling totally accepted, that cements a relationship that goes beyond anything that you would find in a relationship that has not experienced something like this. That's why people who lose children, they either, their relationship becomes something that is absolutely so strong and amazing, they will be together through eternity, or it totally breaks you up and you never want to look at each other again, because all you see is grief and despair. We were lucky. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, it's so, it's so heartbreaking you know, to go to listen to that story and what you went through with the loss of your child and holding your holding her in your arms after building a relationship uh, throughout your pregnancy mm-hmm. with her. And um, I can't even imagine, um, I think you did a great job of describing, you know, the hopelessness and the anguish, you know, the questioning of, of what's right in this world, you know, the questioning of your preconceived ideas that we all kind of have with us and then you know uh, it, it, yeah it took me almost a full six months to write that one chapter about my daughter because as I was writing it I mean it was visceral you know it was I found myself right back in that room experiencing it as if it was happening right now and my family my son would say to me mom don't don't do it. Just just forget about this. Put it aside because it was so real all over again. And what actually is in the book now was cut down <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. Even my editor called me and she's like, Sharon, are you sure? And I'm like, mm, maybe I'll cut it down. And it took me, like I said, almost a full six months to get it to be something that I could actually put out into the world. You know, when we made the audio of it, I was going to read it myself, but I still can't read that one chapter without it taking me right back into that room. So I hired an amazing woman um, to read it for me. 
And she would call me when she got to that chapter. And she says, I had to stop quite a few times because, you know, uh, she and her director, she said, we kept getting this lump in my throat and I just had to stop. I said, I know, I'm sorry, but I wrote it for a very particular reason. You know, my clientele, my patient population is mostly terminally ill patients and their families. And they would all say to me, I, I would tell every one of them my story because it always would eventually come up where the question would be, should I be afraid? Okay, should I be afraid? What, you know, what what's out there? Am I just going to disappear? Am I going to just dissolve into nothingness? And that always gave me the opportunity to say, let me tell you a story. And that's why some of the chapters are titled the way they are. And eventually, when we would lose whoever it was, um, whether it was a child or, you know, husband, spouse, whatever, they would all say to me, could you please write this story down so when we're apart from you next year, the year after, you know, 10 years from now, we can go back and read it and remember what life is all about and what's really real. That's why Starlight exists. I wrote it for a very, very specific population. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, it's important to tell your story and, and especially uh, a loss like that, that, you know, a lot of parents and, you know, um, also have experienced, I was wondering the potential loss of having a t child, like, you know, you're grieving the death as it is, but also the loss of the future, which, oh. right. <laughs> oh boy. You know, it's funny you bring that up. There's a, uh, there's a bunch of groups out there for people who have lost children. And I get emails, I get so many emails every day from people. And I, I do some articles for this group called Compassionate Friends. And one of the articles that I wrote was called In My Dreams, uh, because a lot of people think that the only thing that people miss when they lose a child, you know, that, that is that very moment, okay, that death, that's all they're thinking about. But one of the things that we deal with on a daily basis is all the first that would that we would miss and that's what that one particular item was because i'm you know i started having really lucid dreams after my daughter died and that's why the title of that article was um in our dreams and i said we meet in our dreams and in our dreams you know it, it went from the time she was a little girl um you know to having breakfast together and wanting to go out and play all the way up to the moment when she would have been married and, and the type of gown she would have had on. And, you know, it was all of these things that I missed with her because um, we deal with those. So the loss, the potential, the future, the, the life together that was taken from you, um, that is a really, really difficult thing to deal with for, for people who have lost a child because they think about it all the time and they may have three, four, five, however many other kids and they take great joy in watching these kids go through all of their first, but it's always in your mind, you know? What, yeah. Yeah. What and would definitely. It like? And that probably yeah. obviously why you wouldn't want to be around children. Uh, oh yeah. After it happened like, um, and again, just all those, first like you said you know seeing your child laugh giggle all these mm -hmm. things i would imagine that it's also something that may it, 
bring a lot of emotions and maybe made you feel good to think about those things, but then it's almost like torture or it makes you feel painful at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's both. It really is. And it's, it's both at the same time, <laughs> you know, I can just be in the middle of just laughter thinking about what her sense of humor would have been like and or would she have been a rebel or would we be fighting or would she go through teenage angst and how would I handle all of that and just be laughing at it so much because of what I went through with my son but at the same time feeling very sad that I never had that with her you know so it's this crazy just this crazy dichotomy that I don't even try to figure out anymore. I just kind of go with it, you know, because I know if I try to separate it out and try and look at it, you know, logically, it's not going to happen because this isn't a, this is, this has nothing to do with logic whatsoever. This is purely a spiritual, you know, emotional thing. So. And the other, the other thing that um, was interesting, what you said was um, the difficulty in talking to your spouse, uh, Steve, at that time, it's like, you know, you see those things in society and even in your own relationships, but there's an elephant in the room and it just mm-hmm. gets bigger and bigger. And even though you know rationally what maybe needs to be done, you just can't. And it's just, oh man, I think that's such a common thing sometimes between couples and, and people who maybe live together or whatever. Um, but yeah, that's a real, real thing. It is very real, and I have discovered through decades of doing what I do that even though these thoughts, these emotions, whatever you want to call them, are in your in your soul, sometimes there aren't any words for them. You know, actually forming, seriously being able to form the vocabulary to say what it is that you're feeling, sometimes that's that's impossible. It really is. I mean, a lot of my people that aren't the aren't the terminally ill people, you know, they'll come in and I'll say something like, "What what brings you to me today?" And they'll say, oh, "I'm depressed." And I'll say, "No, you're not." And they'll just look at me, and they say, "Yes, I am." No, you're not. And I'll say, "What's under the depression?" And the, here come the tears. Okay, because there's always a level. I'm a biggie on words. I tell people all the time, you're using the wrong words. You're asking the wrong question. You need to, you know, if you continue to ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. Um, And so getting underneath the depression, what are we talking about? Are we talking fear? Are we talking anger? Are we talking, what are we talking? Okay. Then what's underneath that? And so being able to form the words for something that is, is just not supposed to have happened. You know, when you don't understand why something happens, you can't even, you don't even know the words to use to ask the question. And when you're dealing with a couple that has gone through something like that, and I don't have to tell you, men and women experience things differently. You know, they feel things on, on different levels. I also do a lot of temperament counseling. And so that's, that's really important because I need to know who somebody, you know, really is to know how, why they are responding to something the way they're responding and why people react to them the way they are reacting to them. Um, but when you don't know that, when you're in this personal relationship in the midst of this type of just, you know, soul trauma, this soul wound that you develop, there, there aren't any words. And so it's easier to isolate yourself and it's easier, um, to just, you know, go into your own little cocoon and protect yourself. 
from having to try and form those words because you cannot even begin to imagine how painful that is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also the fear of being not heard or rejected when you do Mm -hmm. share and open up, I would imagine. Uh, That happens in life often sometimes, you know, you have the courage finally to kind of open up and, and tell someone something that's that's so important to you. And then maybe you don't get the response you needed. That's, there's a lot of people get really feared of like scared about that. And that's, you know, even in my own life, like, you know, that's a fearful moment where you don't feel accepted or heard. And uh, I, I imagine that would be a big block as well. Uh, just It's to, huge. Yeah. It's huge. You know, making yourself vulnerable enough to say what, what I, I keep saying is a soul level because it is to make yourself vulnerable to someone and then to be shot down or to, to be laughed at or say, yeah, no, 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 that's not, you know, that's not right. You're da, 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 da. You know, that is so incredibly damaging that you say, I'm never going to make myself vulnerable to you again, ever. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be in, in a relationship. It, it really is. If you can't be vulnerable enough to, you know, to say or to show whether it's some type of a physical, you know, emotional thing, or I, I don't care what it is, psychological, spiritual, sexual, whatever it is, to make yourself vulnerable to another person and then to not be accepted or to be rejected, um, as you said, to not be heard. Boy, oh boy, that is so incredibly damaging. I'm interested in the the dreams that you had of her, because as you said, like they she changed in ages throughout the different dreams. Was there yeah. one dream? Was there one dream of her that really sticks to you in your memory? You know, there are two. There are actually two. In the beginning, right after her death. I would have the usual, you know, just dreams. And dreams to me were always, I never really paid that much attention to them. Um, And then I had one dream where I could see her, and I want to say it was a playground, okay? And I was actually swinging her. But in the next moment, uh, she was in like a stroller, and I was looking down at her face, and she was looking up at mine and reaching up and touching my cheek. That stayed with me forever, but I can't even begin to tell you what that did to me emotionally. It was it was beyond heartbreaking because I could see her touching my face. And the difference between that dream and the others was The others would come and go. This one stayed and I could feel her. Okay. I could feel her hand on my face and I would wake up crying, just sobbing. And Steve, every once in a while would say to me, you know, I I would feel him. He would wake me and he said, honey, you were screaming. And so it actually became almost a night terror um, because I wanted it so badly and yet I was so afraid of it. So what I did I blocked it out. And I tell a lot of people who, who will write to me or, or call me and they'll say, why am I not, why is he or she not coming to me? Why am I not, you know, dreaming or whatever? And I tell them the same thing. You're the one blocking it. 
Okay, we, you know, consciousness is consciousness, and that's what survives. Okay, I mean, it just is. And just because someone isn't coming to us in our dreams or, or whatever you want to call it, dreams, visions, whatever, it doesn't mean they aren't trying. It's meaning we are, we are doing the separating and we are doing the blocking. So that's what I did with her. But after Steve died, I did kind of the same thing. So my, my dreams about her then became just, you know, regular dreams. They'd come, they'd go. I didn't feel that they were real. You know what I mean? That dream, I swear to God, she was right there touching my face. It was, it was different than the others. But I couldn't deal with it emotionally. It just, it brought me to my knees. I just couldn't do it. So I blocked it all out. So every wow. other dream of her was nothing. And then after that's, Steve died, hold on. Oh, go ahead. That's, uh, that's, it's very interesting because it was such a, a positive dream. But yet you said like, it didn't bring you any comfort when you woke up. And no, like, it how didn't. Do you, how do you deal with that pain? Because there is something going on that wanted you to feel that connection right? wanted to feel that. And then yeah. it just, it wasn't time. We just weren't ready. And no, I wasn't. Yeah. And I want to sort of also uh, state too, because I looked at that question. Why do some people dream of the deceased and other people don't? And dream recall was the most important factor. So mm -hmm. I didn't look at if people wanted the dream or not, wanted to dream of the deceased or not, which looking back, it's, it's a really good question that you sort of said, maybe we are avoiding um, wanting it, right? Maybe there's truth to that. Um, but the question I did look at is dream recall. So a lot of people who, so pe more people who remember their dreams more often will remember one of these types of dreams. And so that's like a good way to, when you bring, when people do come and ask you about this, really ask about the dream recall too, because that could also be a, uh, a main factor in why they're not remembering this type right. of dream. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, and you're right. I, I wasn't ready. Really, when you just said that, I, I was not ready for this because I had not dealt with these really deep, dark places um, that I had hidden away inside of me. And, and then having this dream of this, the love, you know, that was directed my way, I think it just angered me even more that it was not in my daily waking life, you know? And trying to deal with that was something that mm, just couldn't do. And then I didn't have another dream about her until after my husband died. But it was like five years after my husband died. I would have two dreams about him, one right after he died, that I would have, God, almost every night. And that caused a lot, a lot of of night terrors for me. I mean, I can remember my dad coming in and just grabbing me and holding me, you know, until I stopped sobbing. I would be, Steve would be standing at the top of this mountain, this huge mountain that was just made of mud and dirt. And I would be at the bottom of this mountain trying to claw my way up to him, you know, and I would get about halfway up. And then he would say to me, you don't belong here. And I would fall down. Um, and that would just that went on for quite a while until I think I must have blocked that out too. Um, but then about five years, and here here was really a big changing point for me. I was so tied up, even after having the shared death shared death experience with him, where I knew that he was safe and I knew that Stephanie was safe, and 
I, I knew, you know, what my truth about the universe was. And, and you know, I, I knew all of that. I still was not able to make myself on an everyday level not go backwards. You know what I mean? Um, even though I knew the truth of everything, you know, once that human condition takes over and you start saying, yeah, but you know, why, why, why? And, and you get angry all over again. And, and the slightest little thing can make you, you know, angry. And it, it becomes a focused practice where you have to go in and say, now, wait a minute, you know where they are, you know what's going on. But it's about five years after Steve died, I was still very tied up in my relationship with him. Okay, I didn't want to let him go. I really didn't. Did not want to let him go. And I wasn't experiencing very much joy or very much peace in my life. I really wasn't. I was involved in school, and that's what I threw myself into. And the only joy I really had was when I was with my boy. You know, he was still very young, and he became my life outside of school. It was him, and there was there was nothing else. And I got more and more and more into me and into him and very controlling, you know, all of that stuff. And then I was crying a lot uh, because I, I was unhappy, you know. Like I said, even though I knew that they were fine, I was unhappy um, as a person having to walk this earth by myself. Uh, you can only be so much to your kid, and your kid can only be so much to you. You know what I mean? And so I was very unhappy, and I went to sleep one night. And I had the craziest dream, but it felt very real. And I thought, okay, this is just odd. I was in this place that was looked almost like a, a Greek cathedral or whatever, you know, with the big marble columns and all that other mess. And I was in there by myself, and I was crying. And I woke up, and I thought, wow. You know, because I could describe every single bit, every single thing that was in that, in that, you know, building. That went on for three or four days. And then the next, it was about this, I want to say it was about the fifth or sixth time I'd had the dream. And these were night after night. I found myself in the same building and I was running. I mean, just running and sobbing and, you know, sweat pouring off of me. And I found myself on the ground on this marble floor, white marble floor. Everything was white. And Steve and Stephanie were there. Stephanie was kind of off in the distance, just kind of staring at me. And Steve was there. And I thought he was hitting me and beating me. Okay, that's that's what I thought he was doing. And I was covering my eyes with my arms. And then I realized that what he was doing was pulling vines off of me. Big, thick, I want to say like grapevines, only grapevines are small. I'm talking about big, thick, like tree roots, okay? And they were covering my body and they were coming out of my ears. I know this sounds weird. They were coming out of my ears and coming out of my mouth and my nose and they were trying to cover my entire body. And what he was doing was pulling them off of me. He was just and I, I remember thinking, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And he's down there fighting like a crazy person. And he's pulling all of these things off of me, just, you know, breaking them open. And I remember hearing a snap, just a loud snap. And when that happened, he was able to pull 
all of these things off of me that was trying to cocoon me in these big, thick, black roots. And he pulled them all off of me. And I looked up at him and he said, now go. And I looked over and I saw Stephanie. She was smiling. And the two of them left. And do you know, two days after that, I met my current husband. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't that weird? And then wow. I never had I never had that dream again. But you know, I have thought about that so often and I have told myself that was Steve's way of telling me I'm gonna release you now. You go, you live, you be happy, we're fine. That's exactly what I think that entire dream meant because I was I was suffocating, you know, I was suffocating and I was suffocating my own life. And after that dream, I was able to just open up and live and be joyful and happy. And like I said, I met my current husband. Wow. Yeah, that's such a powerful image of what was going on and the grief and how like the whole the whole picture of it all. And so when you woke up, did you feel different than when you went? I did. I did. I wasn't crying. Um, I lived with my parents because after Steve died, my son and I moved back to be with them because there was just no way I wanted to be on my own. Plus, I knew I was going to be, you know, going back to school. Um, And, you know, that every other dream I'd ever had, I would wake up and I'd either be crying or, or my mom or my dad would wake me up, you know, because I was sobbing or screaming or doing whatever. And they all seemed like night terrors. But from this one, uh, the first time, the first four or five times I had it, it was like, that is so weird. You know, I'm like, what in the world? And it was frightening. Okay, but it wasn't to the point where I would be, you know, waking up screaming or crying or whatever, but it was frightening. I didn't understand what it was. There was a lot of fear involved in that dream. But after the last time I had it, I never had it anymore. And it was like a total change in me. Matter of fact, it changed even the way I was going to school because I was in medical school. And from that dream, I'm going, wait a minute, I don't need to be in medical school. I don't want to be the pill popper. So I left, I transferred over to graduate school in psychology because I wanted to learn. I'm a forever student. I mean, I'm constantly, you know, taking courses and everything you can think of. I wanted to learn about dream analysis. I wanted to learn about spiritual counseling. I wanted to learn about all of these things that, you know, all of these people talk about all the time. And I talked to monks and priests and ministers and everybody you can even think of to try and figure all of this out and uh, change my life. That that dream just kind of opened me up and really just put me back into living. And like I said, I, I met my husband who turned out to be one of the best stepfathers in the world. People don't even realize that he's a stepfather. Um, to my son because they are so incredibly close Um, and it was almost just like life just started all over again and a lot of that pain and hurt and despair and all of that just kind of went away and I didn't isolate myself anymore and I was able to start talking about things and and getting back out there again so I think when he said now go I kind of knew exactly what he meant (laughs) you know (laughs) Well, I am uh, so amazed on how powerful that dream was for you to not only uplift your spirits, 
do some grief work, but also shift your focus in life. And the timing was impeccable for you to then two days later, then you meet sort of the next person that's going to help open your heart and feel the joy. So I think that is phenomenal. And I'm always amazed when I hear these stories because as much as I hear them, I'm, it just, you're just like, what? You know, I mean, still sit in the mystery of it all. Cause even though I research this stuff, I don't understand this stuff because it can be so powerful because that's what happened to me, you know, complete change in the sense of who I was before going to bed to after. And, you know, you just, I just sort of marvel in these, these powerful stories. So, wow. Thank you so much for sharing and, and, uh, coming on the podcast to talk about that because, you know, people need to hear about this stuff, even though if they haven't had it themselves, hopefully it can be just empowering in their own lives because of the lessons and stuff that it gave you. Well, you know, I think just about everybody, and I I tell this to everyone if they ask, I do not believe there's a person on this planet that has not had some type of spiritual experience or some type of dream that was really real. It's just they don't know how to look at it, or they may not be open to it, or it may scare them like it did me in the beginning, or they don't want to be, you know, told you're psycho, I'm going to put you away or put you on medication, or they just... They don't know what it is. Um, I honestly believe so many people have these because I believe that our consciousness is what, you know, th- this is all about. And, you know, I know it sounds so cliche to say love never dies. Um, you know, love is one of these spiritual things and it doesn't ever die. And I believe we are always in contact with the people that we love and, and we've lost. And, you know, we just can't. We haven't figured out how to see that yet, you know, on, on a level that I do believe we are capable of seeing. But I think one consciousness reach out, you know, reaches out to the other and we just have to be open enough to see it and try to understand it. I mean, of course, it's a mystery. It always will be. We're not supposed to understand everything. Um, all, the best we can do is, is look at it and accept it and, and fit it into our lives the best way we can fit it into our lives, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's, inc- it's a, it's a, this has been a real great story for everybody to listen to, for me to listen to, you know, because it gives us, it gives people hope. It gives uh, encouragement. You know, if, if there are people right now, probably, you know, definitely who are in, in that boat and, and in feeling those emotions, uh, just like, you know, after you lost your daughter and how you felt mm-hmm. hopelessness and, you know, as people, you know, we reach out, we try to figure this out, we try to make sense of it, but sometimes we can't. And, you know, we reach out to friends and family and people outside, and sometimes they can't help. And it's just, it's good to hear that, you know, there was something that was able to change things for you. And, you know, it was a series of dreams that kind of helped guide you Mm -hmm. and, and give you that hope and that glimmer in a time when you're, Again, you know, there are people right now who who are thinking about killing themselves, and there are people who have gone through you know traumatic traumas in their life, and they just can't. They're stuck, and you know, it's it's just encouraging to know that there are places and and there are mechanisms and things that maybe we don't understand, just like you said, but they're at work, and and just you know, give it give it a chance, and and just give it one more day or whatever it is. 
Yeah, giving it that one more day. And, and for me, I, seriously, I, I do tell my patients this too and anybody who wants to listen that for me, the thing that helped me was learning what surrender means. Most people think surrender means, you know, defeat, failure, all of that. But surrender for me meant giving up living in that ego self, you know, um, because that's where, you know, the ego is not going to let go of you once what it wants, you know, your joy, passion, love, anything. They didn't care about that. Um, so absolutely, totally surrendering all that you think you are, all that you think that the universe is, all that you think, you know, belongs to you, surrendering that and just saying, okay, universe, do with me what you will. That almost becomes a form of of centering prayer. That almost becomes a form of sacred word. That almost becomes, you know, this thing that puts you right in the presence of creation. Giving up all of those labels and things that have been thrust on you for your whole life and just saying, okay, here I am. And just be. There's so many answers in that stillness and in that surrender that can absolutely change your life. Yeah, I agree. There's something about just being with the truth of what is mm -hmm. and not avoiding, just sitting with it. And there's a surrender there because you're not trying to fight it away and right. you're not trying to run away from it. You're sitting with it. And yep. that in itself is the hardest thing that I've, you know, in my journey too, been learning how to do more and more of. Oh, it it's is hard. It, it's yeah. so incredibly hard. <laughs> it sounds so easy to say. Um, a really good friend of mine, a mentor of mine, um, he's actually a priest. He's a Augustinian. Um, and he said to me one time, because I talked to him about this all the time. He said to me, you know, Sharon, one of the hardest prayers to pray is your will, not mine. And I said, boy, are you not kidding? Because your will, not mine. I always want to add the, but I would really like, <laughs> you know, um, but surrendering yourself, like you just said, just into the stillness. That is, oh, that, that is so difficult to do. Well, the truth is ugly, right? <laughs> yeah, Kemp, I want to hear your story. You you have me so curious about your story. Well, you I don't start know a your story. <laughs> well, what you know what you have to do? You have to start a podcast and invite me on. <laughs> I will do that. I will do that. I write a column for Thrive Global, you know, Erin Huffington's thing. So I'm going to interview you because you just have me so curious now about your story. I want to know what it is. So when this is over, you got to send me an email or something because I'm going to reach out to you and say, all right, here we go. Here's your questions. Now answer them. Um, I love hearing these things from other people because it just reinforces everything that I found in my life and all of the things that I find. I've been with so many people as they lay dying and the wisdom that comes out of these people, the things that they say, the things that they see, it just really reinforces what I believe about, you know, soul speak and, and this soul woundedness and the consciousness never leaving and, 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 you know, communicating the things that, that we need to hear. It's not just, it's not just this fanciful thinking. I mean, this is, this is real stuff. This is real deal stuff, you know? Yeah, I hear you. That's, uh, that's the, that's why we're here and that's the best part about this is it's real and it's it's the most important and you know it doesn't matter you know what kind of loss you've been through you know there's lots of different types of grief and loss but there we do share things in common and that's absolutely that, 
you know, the pain and, and the grief and, and, and the, the, the conversations are, are so important. And again, the guests that we talk to and all these, all these different people like yourself, we talk to, it's just, it's so fulfilling and it's so encouraging, you know, to, to, you know, whether you're in a tough spot to move forward after hearing someone's lost story and, and what, what, what emotions and what they've gone through. Cause we're, we're humans. We're all, we're all alike in, in a lot of different ways. And sometimes, you know, uh, we don't get to hear these things enough. Uh, but, but when you do get a chance to talk to someone like you and hear your story and hear about um, how you've, you know, overcame and risen up from, from uh, a lot of depth in your life. I think that's uh, it's so encouraging and um, it just makes us feel connected. Well, you know, there is a place beyond hopelessness. There's a place beyond despair, and there isn't any really word for what that is. And when people go into that space, and they don't even have a word for what it is, that's where you're going to see a lot of suicides, and you're going to see a lot of, you know, the why am I even here, and, and you know, and people that are never able to get up off their knees. I was that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was granted the experience I was granted. And I think that's one of the reasons why these dreams came to me. Uh, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, people being saved by someone that they that they loved, you know, and lost just, you know, things that are absolutely miraculous. And I do believe those things exist. So for your people that, you know, you talk to, you know, if you're just letting them know, and this is what I do, is I just let them know that there are places that the human spirit can go to that are so empty and so lonely. But there are remedies for that that are here if you open yourself up to them and you let you you know, you let yourself face the fear and like you said, be still in that fear and you know, it will be given to you. I really believe that. I, I do believe that it will be given to you, whether you want to use the word God or conscious, you know, God or creation or universe, you choose your word. Um, but when you just release, you know, yourself from not wanting to look at something and you face it down, it takes a great deal of courage, but your answer can be in there. And I think that's important for people to understand that other people have been there too. That's well said. And so as we wrap up the show, there is one thing that I would like to ask you, sure. which is what was the shared death experience you had? Because I know you mentioned it, but you didn't actually go into detail on what, it, what actually happened. The day that Steve died was a god-awful horrible day. And that, that's almost funny to hear that come out of my mouth because there aren't really any words for what it was. Um, the tumors in his body had broken up and traveled to his brain and he couldn't see, he couldn't hear, he couldn't talk, he couldn't anything. And that was really the first time in nine months that I had been able to hold him because every nerve fiber in his body was on fire. And I actually crawled up in the bed behind him and just held him in my arms, went to sleep with him and didn't want to, that going to sleep was my way of denying the entire situation, you know, wasn't going to happen. Anyway, long story short, that night at about 10.30, our oncologist, uh, my parents and the oncologist and the private duty nurse I hired were all in the room with me. And my oncologist, who'd become a good friend by then, 
asked me if I would please get up so he could check Steve's vitals and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, sure. So I went in the bathroom to get a drink and realized I hadn't, I looked in the mirror and I'm like, who is that gray old woman? Because that's, you know, I looked at myself and I didn't even recognize me. It, it was, you know, a long time living in the hospital. So while I'm in there, I hear the doctor just yell. And what he yelled, I won't say. You really shouldn't use those words um, on any kind of a radio podcast. And so I went running out of the room and rounded the corner, almost fell on my butt, you know, because those floors, they wax those those linoleum floors so many times, they're slippery. And I rounded the corner, and what had happened was Steve was actually rolled over, which was medically impossible, but he had. And I went to the side of his bed. He had rolled over onto his right side. So I went over to the right side of the bed, and I kind of squatted down so that we were nose to nose, okay? I mean, we were right there. And his eyes were open. And my oncologist, of course, was all over him because this was a medical impossibility. This should not have been happening. And I looked at him, and I could tell he saw me, okay? Which, again, he had been blinded when these these tumors went to his brain. But I knew he could see me. You know when you look at somebody and you can see light in their eyes and you know they see you? Well, that's what I saw. And so I thought, I did it. I won. He's going to live. You know, I put God and death in their place. You know, screw you. You're not going to take him too. And I looked at him. And knowing that he was looking at me, and I said to him, what are you staring at? I know how stupid that is. After going through all of this, and I'm thinking I've won the battle, he was going to live. I said, what are you looking at? Because that was the way we talked to each other. You know, it was one of those, hi, how you doing? Nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. And he spoke to me, which again, everybody in the room just gasped. I thought my mom was just going to fall out. And he looked at me and he said, I'm, I just want to remember. I'll never forget those words. And when he said that, everyone in the room just kind of gasped. You know that, <gasps> that you do when something is so unexpected. And when I did that, he breathed out. I breathed in. And I did not realize until I kind of opened my eyes full to look back at him again. His eyes had gone dark and I knew that he had died. But at the same moment, I knew that I had breathed in his last breath. And when I realized that, I just fell to the floor. Now, this sounds like it took minutes and minutes and minutes, but this was just seconds. And I just fell to the floor. And my doctor and my dad, my mom, the nurse were all standing there watching this, thinking this didn't just happen. But then I stood up. And I have said, ever since this happened, that I stood up by means that I, was, I wasn't powering myself. Something else had powered me. And it was the, the ceiling started turning into mist and the floor started to disappear, even though I knew I was standing on it. I knew I was in the same room. And there was a big picture window um, on the right side, you know, facing the direction that, that Steve was in. And that window just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I saw the stars. And that's why the book's called Becoming Starlight. It was as if billions of stars were all of a sudden coming into that room. I saw each and every single star. Very unique. Every one of them I saw unique in and of itself. But it was also one great big monstrous light. But the different thing, the different thing about it was I felt a presence 
okay, inside these stars, inside this light. And I got to tell you, I, I went toward that just as fast and furiously as I could. There was no fear. There was no nothing. And I wanted to go in to that light because I felt this incredible peace, just beyond peace. I've never been able to find the right words for it. And if you can imagine yourself going through every negative emotion that a human can possibly experience and then going through every positive emotion, all the joy, the peace, the the love, the you name it, and coming to a point where you didn't feel anything, where you were almost numb, but that that feeling was one of a completeness, that's what was inside those stars. And standing right there in front of me was Steve. Standing right in front of me. I knew he was fine. He looked like his old self. You know, Steve was a big guy, 6'4", six, six, um, 200 pounds when he got sick. And when he died, he didn't even weigh 90 pounds. He'd just been eaten alive. But there he was standing in front of me, well, happy, joyful, smiling at me. And, and I just knew that he was fine. And we stood there like that just kind of staring at each other, you know. And I said to him, I can see you. He didn't speak back, but I knew it was him. Now, whether this was a physical thing or something that I saw with some type of spiritual sense inside of me, I I could not tell you. But it was him, and eventually the smile started to fade, and he started to walk away. And inside my being, it didn't matter that he was going. I didn't even need to feel, I didn't feel the need to say goodbye because I knew where he was going. Number one, I wasn't going to be allowed to go because I didn't have any place there. Sort of like in my dream where he kept saying, you don't belong here. And I knew he was going to go be with our daughter. And the sense of peace that came over me knowing that he had not just dissolved into nothingness, that my daughter was there waiting for him, and that I would be there with them eventually. That absolutely changed everything about what I believed about the universe, and that's where I found my truth because the place I went to, that's why in the book is called That Place Instead of Heaven. I don't say heaven. Because as soon as you say heaven, somebody gets these visions in their heads of what they were taught when they were kids. You know, when you say the word heaven, people think of, you know, all the stories. uh, You know, as humans, we need those visual stories, you know, that we can see. So we think, oh, that's what heaven looks like. That isn't at all what I found. So that's why I don't call it heaven. Um, And as far as God is concerned, my Charlton Heston thing went, you know, (laughs) right out the window. uh, Because it was the most... And it was personal, by the way. It was very personal. A lot of people say it's an impersonal God, right? No, 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 no. This is personal. I was the one. Me. I was being taken care of. I was being loved beyond any condition. I never use the words unconditional love either because that right now is kind of foolish. I don't believe any human being on the planet um, can 
actually offer someone unconditional love, even our children who we would stand in front of a truck for. Uh, we all have expectations of each other, and having encountered what I encountered in, you know, that experience I had, this goes far beyond anything that there's even words for. So that was this. I was given this peek. Okay, given this peek into what's out there, totally changed my entire spiritual life. Totally changed it. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> I really like that experience. <laughs> what uh, what did the people around you say when you came out of it? Did they just say you were just standing there? Well, it was very interesting. Um, my the oncologist was scared for me. He thought I was dying. And he actually was listening to my heart rate, which dropped really low.、Um, and he he really thought that I I was going to die too. My mom was so scared that she actually passed out. And so my dad was trying to you know take care of her. Everybody in the room knew something was happening. I was breathing, but my blood pressure slowed down to absolutely nothing. My heart rate was absolutely nothing. I was there, but I wasn't there. It was. Almost like a, I want to call it a semi-comatose state, and yet they could tell from what I was doing and the way I was moving my body that I was fine, but physiologically I wasn't. And what happened after this was over? Eventually, I wanted to stay there. Okay, I, I really did. I wanted to stay in that place, but eventually I could feel myself, you know, being. Having to leave, okay, and it was it, it. Once again, it sounds like I'm talking about something that took you know, 15 minutes to come back, but actually it was 45 minutes、um, before I I realized that people were around me again and and all that kind of stuff. It was 44 and a half minutes. My dad timed it. <laughs>、um, and the weird thing was the first thing out of my mouth, and this got my in-laws so angry at me because they were there too. The first thing that came out of my mouth. I said that is the most awesome experience I've ever had. Well, if you look at it from their point of view, I was saying that the death of their son was the most awesome experience I'd ever had. They didn't understand it because they took it totally out of context because they didn't have any idea、um, until I explained, you know, everything, everything that had happened. But、uh, it was. It was strange and it was wonderful and it was absolutely magnificent and it was weird and it was all of those things all together,、um, and it caused me. It set me on the path to doing an awful lot of research and changing what I was going to do with my life. That's fascinating. I love it. I love it, and I'm glad you were able to have that experience and then be able to share it with others moving forward and writing this book. So. The last question that we have on the podcast is: If you could have one dream tonight of someone who has died, who would that be, and what would that dream look like? It would be my mom. It would be my mom. My dad died 12 years ago, and Jerry and I took care of my mother. She was 90. We took care of my mom.、Uh, we lost her two years ago, and I did all the wrong things <laughs> with her. Um, because I didn't want to lose her, so I didn't say the things I wanted to say. You know, it was always, "No, Mom, we don't need to talk about that. You're gonna be just fine." And my dream would be where she comes and she sits next to me and she brushes my hair the way she used to, and then I brush Ray her hair the way I used to, and I say, "You know how much I love you, right?" 
I've thought about that so many times. And her just saying, yep, I know, honey, don't worry about it. <laughs> that would be my dream. It would be my mom. I like that. And what, what age would you want her to be? Um, you know, it's funny. I would want her to be just like she is now. Because we talked and we did and we played and we, you know, everything. We were very, very bluntly honest with each other, you know, our whole lives. It was only when I knew I was losing her that all of a sudden it was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to tell her it's okay to go. I'm not going to, you know, do all the things that I know I should do. And it was at the moment where I knew that her soul was disconnecting with her body because that's another thing I believe totally that soul disconnects from your body before the actual physical cessation of life and it was at that point that I'm like no 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 you can't go I haven't said what I need to say I did this all wrong and so when I think about if I had that dream I would want her to be exactly as she was exact I wouldn't want her younger because everything was fine you know we talked about everything we fought we argued we loved we played you know, it was just when I knew I was losing her that I couldn't address that. So I would like to see her exactly as she is right now. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. And um, yeah, I really hope you get that dream uh, tonight or, or sometime soon, Sharon. Well, I'll put that into my consciousness. You know, the last five minutes before you go to sleep, Wayne... Wayne Dyer was a, a friend of mine, and he was such a mentor to me. And he, he used to say in a lot of his teachings, it's the last, you know, five minutes, especially the last few seconds right before you go to sleep, you know, when you're in that twilight zone, you know, you're asleep, but you're not. What it is right then that you concentrate on, that's what you're going to dream about. So I'm going to think about that tonight during those moments and see oh, if it happens. That's, you know? that's a good strategy. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this has been a real joy to sit in this podcast and listen. And, you know, you have a really beautiful way of speaking and you, you stay on point. But you also you bring us on a journey. And again, I, I enjoyed it. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. Um, and Sharon, uh, thank you. But uh, and can you also share some of your handles and website where people can reach you? Sure. Uh, let's see, there's my website, which is SharonPrentice.com. Instagram, SharonPrenticePhD. Uh, I haven't been on there that long, um, but it's starting to grow like crazy, and it's like, oh my gosh, stop me emailing me, people. No, not really. Um, and then there's Facebook, which is Sharon Prentice, also PhD. Um, those are really about the only ones... Yeah, that's about it. Uh, I'm not really a big, huge social media person, um, but I will tell you this. The Facebook, within the matter of weeks, there was like 35,000 people on it and asking me questions. And I'm like, oh, my good Lord. But I answer everyone's questions myself. If someone takes the time to tell me their story and they have a question, they're going to get an answer from me. It may take me a little while. But I don't, you know, form it out to anybody else. I figured they take their time, then I'm going to take the time to respond back. And now Instagram has gotten that way. I started out with like 11 people and I think we're up, I don't know, eight or 9,000 now. And the same thing is happening. Um, but I, once again, answer all of them. I don't do Twitter much. Um, I go there to look at it, but I'm more of a face-to-face 
talk to me than I am social media person. But I will get back to everyone if you know if someone uh, has a has a question that they're dealing with or if they're stuck, you know, somewhere that they need to get out of. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much for that. And and again, we'll have to we'll have to have you on again. I think because uh, this was uh, I think I think we covered a lot, but we didn't. And we, I'm sure we can talk a lot more about a lot of different things. I think you have a very inquisitive mind and uh, you have a way with words, which is great. Uh, so thank you again. And uh, yeah, people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we did add a, do- add a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end our podcast with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.